The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 8:23 through 27. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through cunning and by his influence, and in his own mind he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes." Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. Speed to God. You may be seated. So in the summer of 2020, our minivan started acting strange. In fact, it got so bad one day that as I was driving, I had to stop by the side of the road. I wouldn't drive anymore. And it had to be towed to the, the shop for the mechanic to look at it. And there I heard the news that I'd been dreading. Our transmission had gone out. This, this is especially painful for me because 20 years earlier, our transmission had gone out on our honeymoon. And so I I really did live in fear and dread of this happening again. So when Carrie and I got married, we were poor and in love. And by the end of our first week of marriage, we were even poorer. Thankfully, still in love. So I had a decision to make about the minivan. Should I keep it? Should I replace it? I didn't like either option. Both were very expensive. Before I went to make the decision, I, I visited the, the shop where the mechanic was going to repair the transmission. I started talking to him, and he told me that it was a common problem in the van I owned, that he worked on many of them, and he was able to fix it. And once fixed, he said, the new transmission will outlast the van, which I'm not sure if it was good news or bad news about the van. Then he told me how much it would cost. Listen, that was a day filled with bad news because replacing a transmission is expensive. And and knowing that I'd replace it and knowing it costs this much, it was bad news and no amount of other news was going to make it feel better. But knowing that once it was fixed, that it was done, it wouldn't happen again, that, that made it bearable. Not good, not fun, not pleasant, not easy, but bearable. You know, it's hard to make bad news better. Like if it's, if it's really bad news, if it's painful, then nothing else takes that pain away. But knowing it won't go on forever softens the pain a little bit and at least, at least helps us endure. So if you've ever been in a situation where you learn from a doctor that you have to have major surgery and, and it's going to be a very difficult surgery and it's going to be a long recovery, like nothing else it's like, oh, well, that sounds fun. No, it's going to be painful and it's going to be hard. 
And, and the one thing that makes you, convinces you that you're going to do it is when the doctor says, but in the end, it's going to stop. The pain will go away. If you've ever had chemo, right? Chemo is just a horrible thing. And, and he- hearing from those who've, who've gone through it, they'll say like each week, each month, each treatment was terrible. The only thing that helped me endure was that each time I had it, I was closer to zero when I wouldn't have to have any more treatments. When the book of Daniel opens, it opens with the nation of Israel having been brought into subjugation to the Babylonian empire. Now God had told them this would happen. This was a judgment for their sin. And he promised them that it would last only a short period of time and then they would be returned to their land. And so in the book of Daniel, you have the nation of Israel in Babylon. They're in exile. They're awaiting rescue and they're looking forward to the day when they get to return home. But here in chapter 8, the Dan- Daniel re- receives a vision that even after they return home, it doesn't mean their suffering is over. In fact, not only will it continue, but there's coming a day in the future where it's going to be worse. This news is so difficult for Daniel to hear. It says in verse 27 that he is sick and in bed, incapacitated for days. More suffering for God's people. Worse than this. But this news is not without hope because he is told in this very same breath that this suffering does eventually end. And so here's what we learn is that persecution is painful, but it's not permanent. You know, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have actually received similar news. It's easy for us maybe to not think about it or ignore it or, or get so busy that, that we're not, we're not, it's not on our mind. But here's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said in John 16, a time is coming when anyone, listen, who kills you thinks he is offering service to God. The Apostle Paul, as he traveled around from church to church, these are churches he started, these are people he cared for deeply, he was preparing them to endure. He wanted their faith to continue no matter what happened. He said this to them, he said, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. He said this to Timothy, his son in the faith, he said, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will endure persecution. You see, if we obey Jesus Christ, then that puts us at odds with the world around us, and with that comes opposition and persecution. The more committed we are to living in obedience to God, the more opposition we face. And here's what we've learned so far in Daniel, right? Is that if we want to avoid hostility, all we've got to do is compromise with the culture, right? That's all you've got to do. You can avoid it, but the way you do it is to compromise what God has said. But if you refuse to compromise, then this is the reality that persecution is real. It's unavoidable. It's painful, but it is not permanent. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what I'm hoping is that what you hear this morning helps you better understand Christianity, 
Because there's a lot of things that are packaged, packaged as Christianity that just are senseless garbage. Like you can turn on the TV, you can go to churches where a preacher or teacher gets up and they, they tell you that what God wants for you is he wants everything to be comfortable and easy and he wants you to live just the best possible version of your life right now where everything's sort of glorious. It's sort of like playing Candyland. Like even the, even the bad things will be like bubble gum and cotton candy. All you've got to do is pray a prayer and you usually send them money and everything will be wonderful. That's what God wants for you. In fact, they claim that Christianity guarantees a safe, trouble-free life right now. They offer the kingdom without a cross. That offer was made once earlier in human history by Satan to Jesus too. And so what I hope for you, if you're not a Christian this morning, is that you'll, you'll understand better what Christianity is and you'll see this, that it does not promise you something that you don't witness, which is a trouble-free life. It promises that there is hope in the end, and the hope is so good and so worth it that it helps you endure the difficulty. So as we work through Daniel chapter 8 this morning, we can identify four realities, and these realities help shape our understanding of the future. How are we supposed to understand what's coming, not only from Daniel's perspective, but from ours as well? Four realities. Here's reality number one. Nations continue to fight each other. Nations continue to fight each other. So this chapter, or chapter opens with another vision in verse 1. This is two years after the vision of chapter 7, which we studied last week. Daniel is still captive in Babylon. Babylon has yet to fall. That'll come soon. But in this vision, he's transported, in, sort of in, in the vision, to Susa, which is the capital city of Persia. Verse 2. Like the previous vision, this one is a violent beast. Let's pick it up in verse 3. I looked up and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. Now we're told later in the chapter, verse 20, that this ram is a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. The two horns symbolize this combined kingdom. One of the horns is larger because in this kingdom, the Persian Empire was sort of the dominant of the two empires. This was the kingdom that was represented by a bear in the previous chapter. This kingdom, we're told here, and this is what happens, it defeats Babylon as well as the surrounding communities. It's this violent beast who has no regard for right or wrong, but it just it only does what it wants, which is, what it wants is to destroy other kingdoms and bring them under its rule. But along comes another kingdom. This is the kingdom who destroys Persia. This kingdom is represented by a goat. We find out in verse 21, it's the kingdom of Greece. Under Alexander the Great, they swiftly conquer the known world, and then Alexander dies, and the kingdom is divided up into four pieces. Look at verse 5. As I was observing, a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. See the the speed in which Alexander the Great marched and conquered. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Horns are just a symbol for a ruler. Think of a, a crown. Think of power. So this horn is a ruler. Verse 6, he came toward the two-horned ram. I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns. And the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly. When he became powerful, the large horn was broken. 
four conspicuous horns. So four kingdoms with four separate rulers came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven, divided into sort of four geographical sections. Now think about this. This is the second chapter in a row that has portrayed kingdoms as beasts and the kings as horns on the beast. In chapter 7, Persia and Greece were a bear and a leopard. Here in chapter 8, they're a goat and a ram. Now, we looked at a little bit of why that was last week, right? By, by portraying them as beasts, it demonstrates this sort of beastly character of anyone who, who rebels against God. Instead of being a, a king under God over the beast, they become beastly themselves. But, but there's more than that going on here. And so we should ask ourselves, what, what's the purpose of writing like this? Like, did you read this this week? Maybe you studied this in a small group and you're like, what? Like, well, why all this heavy symbolism? Maybe you, like me, didn't do great in English class. You thought you were done with that kind of thing. Like, why, does, why are there sections of the Bible that are written like this? And I think there are a couple purposes. First is symbolic language mixes certainty with mystery. So it's, it's mixing these two things together, certainty and mystery. So what happens is it, is it makes the bigger details really clear by... In- but intentionally leads, leaves vague some of the smaller things. And so what that does on a practical level is it, it gives us confidence and assures us that God fulfills his promise, but it prevents us from thinking that we understand everything God is going to do. God's timing and details are mysterious even while the end and the big picture is clear. In fact, one of the fascinating things about Daniel 8 is that the prophecies here that we're going to look at about about. Greece and Persia, and we're going to see some more in the chapters to come about them, and their various leaders are so clear that some biblical critics say there's no way this was written by Daniel. It had to be written after the events that it talks about. So, so in spite of this, there's, there's this combination of certainty about the big picture. Here's what God's doing, but mystery about some of the details beyond that. But here's a second reason. Symbolic language conveys experience more deeply than words can. This portrays things more deeply than words, right? We say this all the time, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. Now, this is like a moving picture. It's a movie. Maybe this is worth a hundred thousand words. So when we're just using words and, and not pictures, not symbols, we're limited in what we can reveal to another person based upon their own words and the concepts they're familiar with. This, this happened to me just a couple weeks ago. So Matthew Marshall was with us. If you remember, he's from Scotland. And we were trying to introduce him to American football. And so we were watching a football game. And at some point, I don't remember if, if somebody else said it or I said it, but we mentioned the center. Okay? And so in trying to clarify that to Matthew, because I saw this look of confusion on his face, I said, he's the guy who snaps the football to the quarterback. I'm pretty sure the only word Matthew understood in that sentence was ball. What snaps? What's a quarterback? So then I clarified by saying, well, he's the one who hikes the ball. Well, if you look at the line of scrimmage, but if I'd simply gone, he's the guy who does this. Like, then you're like, oh, okay, that guy. Right? I, I was limited with, in communicating by the words and concepts that, and vocabulary he has. One author said, imagine trying to describe a pineapple to an Eskimo in the Arctic. So it's probably the closest you can come is sweet and juicy blubber. Because there's just no words that he has that understands these concepts. And so what happens is by personifying these kingdoms as violent beasts, 
we understand just sort of at this emotional and physical level the, how inhumane they will be. Maybe they help us feel what it would be like to find out that there was this army that's going to invade and destroy everything you love. These symbols make certain truths unmistakable. Nations will constantly fight one another. This was written 25, 2,600 years ago. Is that not true? Has it ended? Nations will resort to great violence. They will seem unstoppable. And what looks powerful will be gone in an instant. Uh, just a blink of the eye and another unstoppable kingdom crumbles to the ground. In 1946, in Nuremberg, 14 Nazi leaders were executed for their crimes against humanity. After they were executed, their, their bodies were taken to a crematorium where they were turned into ashes. All, the ashes of all 14 bodies were put, into, were put into a container and placed in the back of a vehicle They were driven a few hours out into the countryside and in a drizzling rain, the ashes were dumped onto a muddy river where they were just instantly washed away. Just a few years earlier, these men had shaped the destiny of nations. They had pulled the world into a war. And in their arrogance, they had taken people captive, they had trampled people in the dust. And if you had told people a few years earlier that these men themselves would be turned into dust and scattered and forgotten, no one would have believed you. Persia's reign lasts for 200 years. Then they're, they're defeated by mighty Alexander, and mighty Alexander rules until the ripe old age of 33, and then he's done. So here's the first reality that shapes how we see the future, is that nations continue to fight each other. Here's reality number two. The focus of their rage turns to God's people. The focus of their rage turns to God's people. So from the four Grecian kingdoms that, that, that came up after Alexander, a ruler will emerge who sets his sight on the nation of Israel. Now, historically, we can identify with great certainty who this ruler is. But, but again, this is, you need, what we need to understand as we read through this, because his actions are portrayed in symbolic form, we, we need to understand that we can identify him, but we need to see beyond him. This is symbolic of something more than a minor king who reigned for a short time 2,200 years ago. So this king was a real person named Antiochus IV, but he stands symbolically just as a blasphemous and brutal ruler who persecutes the people of God. He wasn't the first. He won't be the last. In fact, we understand from Daniel that all of these rulers like this are a picture of a final rebellion against Jesus before he establishes his never-ending kingdom. So think about this. In, in the previous chapter, if you were here last week, in one of the vision there, there was a picture of a horn that came up, but it was on not the third kingdom, it was the fourth kingdom. This time it comes from the third kingdom. So you have two different horns, but the reason they're described the same way in very similar terms is because they, they have the same goals. They target the people of God. And so what it's, what it's showing us is these two horns and all of the horns that preceded them and all of the horns after them, right? They, they have the same goals. They have the same purpose. They have the same strategy. This actually reminds me of, of a scene from The Princess Bride where Wesley is talking to Buttercup and he tells her that years earlier when he'd left to sort of make the fortune before he came to, to marry her, I'm going to give some spoilers. It's 30 years old, so hopefully you've seen it by now. 
before he's going to marry, he's taken captive by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And, and the Dread Pirate Roberts famously just executes everyone he takes captive, but for some reason left Wesley alive. And over time, Wesley was, became part of the crew, and he was taught and trained. And one day, the Dread Pirate Roberts pulled him to the side and, and explained to him how it works, that when the Dread Pirate Roberts gets enough money to, to retire, what he does is he, he, he lands the crew and he, and he re- lets them all go and he takes on a brand new crew and he appoints someone else to be the Dread Pirate Roberts and he sort of sails off to the sunset. And so there wasn't just one Dread Pirate Roberts, there's a, a series of Dread Pirate Roberts and it ends with Wesley turning the mantle of Dread Pirate Roberts over to a friend of his. And that's sort of what's saying here. Antiochus, he's not the first horn. He's not the first brutal and blasphemous king. He, he won't be. In fact, we know this, the description of him as a horn that grows higher and higher reminds us of things we've already studied, the Tower of Babel and King Nebuchadnezzar, that were both blasphemous and brutal and rebellious circumstances. He's not the first. He's not the last. But his actions are terrible. Here are the act- how the actions are described. They're described symbolically, but look at verse 10. It, that being the horn, this ruler grew as high as the heavenly army. He made some of the army and some of the stars fall to earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. It's telling us here that Antiochus viciously attacks the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel there is described as stars. And it goes back to a promise God made to Abraham. Abraham was old, had no children. God had promised him children, and Abraham was struggling to believe it. And so God took him outside and said, look look at all the stars in the sky. So will your offspring be. And so here he's saying this wicked ruler attacks the, the people of God, the offspring of Abraham, But notice his rage is not really at Israel. It's at God himself. In fact, Antiochus took the name for himself, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He wanted people to see him as an epiphany, a vision of God and his glory. And so what he does is after he defeats Israel, he bans the worship of God and he takes a pig into the altar, an unclean animal, and he sacrifices it there on the altar, desecrating it. And for a period of time, sets up idols in, in the center of the temple. So listen to how the angel describes what happens under his reign. Jump down to verse 23. Near the end of their kingdoms, the kingdoms of Persia and Greece, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, Skilled in intrigue will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction. It uses this word three times. Destruction or destroy. And to succeed in whatever he does, he will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Daniel then hears a voice echo a common question from Israel's past. A question asked by many of God's people when suffering. Verse 13, the question is, how long? How long will this last, Lord? And then a very mysterious answer comes back. In verse 14, it says, for 2,300, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, listen, that's a mysterious answer. 
I bet it's been interpreted in 2,300 different ways. Many think it probably refers to maybe the length of Antiochus' reign, which is about seven years, or, or possibly the time when he had desecrated the temple, which was about four years. But, but I would say the, how to understand the figure is, is far less important than understanding what it represents. It represents a definite, fixed time. It isn't short, but it's not long. It certainly doesn't last forever. The reign of evil corrodes everything it touches, including itself. Now, looking at a passage like this, we should ask this question. Why do evil leaders, leaders like Antiochus or all the other horn-like leaders, why do they persecute the people of God? Why does this rage keep coming against God's people? We talked about last week that Forbes magazine estimates 360 million Christians are suffering persecution currently. Let me give you a few reasons, I think. One reason is Christians make easy targets. Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. Why? Because he understand that Christians don't fight back. Like Jesus, we entrust ourselves to God's justice, not our ability to counterattack. Another reason is because Christians stand out from the culture. True Christians live distinctly Christians' life. So it's life, so it's it's easy to spot them, it's easy to identify them, therefore it's easy to target them. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How how did they come under fire for their failure to follow the instruction, the pagan instruction of the king? Well, when everyone else kneeled down, it's easy to spot the few people that are standing up. Here we see the persecution is satanic in origin. Verse 24 says of Antiochus, it says his power will not be his own. And and so I want you to think about this, that Satan ever since the Garden of Eden has, has fought a war against Jesus, but the reality is he can't touch Jesus. I mean, he tried once. He did his best and it actually ensured his defeat. So he can't touch Jesus. So you know what he does? He goes after Jesus' people because we matter that much to Jesus. Our, our union with Jesus is so close that the best he can do is go after us. And so though that's hard to hear, maybe there's some comfort in that too. That Satan so identifies you with Jesus that as a Christian, since he can't reach Jesus, he will target you. Sometimes God uses persecution by evil rulers to judge his people for their rebellion. Think about the book of Judges, and you have this constant cycle of rebellion, and God sends in judgment through these evil kings. This is the reason, actually, Israel's in exile here in Babylon. It's suggested here in verse 12 that what happens to Israel is a result of their rebellion. And finally, we need to understand that behind any persecution of God's people is arrogant defiance of God himself. I think back to chapter 3. You have Nebuchadnezzar who builds this mammoth statue of gold that represents him and his kingdom and his power, and he tells everyone to bow before it, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to do it, and he brings them before them. In his anger, he sort of sneers at them, and he asks this question, now what God will save you from my hand? That's the point. His point is there's no one. There's no one bigger than me out there, no one more powerful than me, no one that I have to listen to. And so rulers, the more power they get, they want everyone to know that they're great. No one's above them. Bow down and give your allegiance to me. And as Christians, we refuse to do that because we say our allegiance goes to Christ, to him alone. Now, persecution comes often by attacking the truth of what God has said. 
Verse 12 tells us this little horn threw the truth to the ground. In other words, he discarded it. He said, like, like this isn't worth, this is worthless. We don't, we don't use this here anymore. I mean, I think we see this happening around us, right? Where truth is discarded. It's not worthwhile anymore. We don't listen to that. That's not a part who we are. And so listen, when truth is tossed to the ground, we can live very peacefully if we'll just simply go along with it. If we don't resist the fact that truth has been tossed on the ground, then, then, then we, can, we can be peaceful. But if we choose to hold to the truth, then that puts a target on us. And currently what that probably looks like for most of us at the worst is that maybe we're called a name. Or maybe, you know, someone says no thanks to us. It's likely coming that we'll lose jobs or businesses. And we know around the world that there's far greater danger for saying, no, I am going to define my life by the truth of what God has said and not lies. So here's, I think here the, here's the pressing question for us. There's a question that's been pressing on us throughout the book of Daniel. Will we give in to the pressure of denying the gospel? Will we give in to the pressure of denying the truth of God's word in order to save ourselves from pain and suffering? See, God God gives Daniel this message so that when future suffering comes for the people of God, they won't lose heart. So, so they, won't, they won't be suffering and say, like, wait a second. I thought God promised that we would return to the Eden, but it actually feels like it's worse than exile. Like, what's going on here? And so God is bolstering the faith of his people by telling them that there are multiple exoduses before they reach the promised land. John Kelvin wrote, he said, For if nothing had been predicted, the godly would have glided gently downwards to despair, because of their heavy afflictions. So God warns us of suffering to keep us from despair. Here's the third reality that shapes our understanding of the future. The Prince of Heaven guarantees a victorious future. Now verse 15 may be the most encouraging verse in the entire chapter because it says Daniel doesn't understand what he's seen. I mean, who can who cannot identify with that? So God sends an angel to explain the vision to him in verses 16 through 19. The angel refers to this vision as the time of the end or the conclusion of the time of wrath. I think this is an easy thing to misinterpret, to think this is referring simply to sort of the end times, uh, final times out there. But the context here is the end of this time of suffering in verse 14. But because it's symbolic in language, we understand that it's showing us that this type of thing is very cyclical. It's part of the pattern that plays out time after time after time until the very end when Jesus returns. So the, bee, the angel explains that these beasts are these two nations, Persia and Greece in verses 20 and 21. That the final leader there, the vicious leader, will come out of the, the fourfold division of Greece in 22 and 23. He describes in more detail what Antiochus will do in verses 24. And then he assures Daniel that this reign of terror will end in a supernatural final wave verse 25. And then he says, verse 26, I want you to write all this down. I want you to safeguard it for the future so that the people of God can read this and find strength and hope and encouragement. Now we know from history that God delivers his people from Antiochus when Judas Maccabees leads a revolt in 164 BC. 
Antiochus is defeated and he soon dies from a painful stomach condition. In fact, if you're, you've heard of or are familiar with Hanukkah, this is the annual celebration of Judas Maccabee's victory over Antiochus and, and purging them out of Jerusalem. But we know, don't we, that these prophecies point us to someone greater than Judas Maccabees. And they point us ahead to Jesus. And so I want, to, I want you to see three ways just here quickly that they, they reveal Jesus to us and his victory over all satanic schemes. First, Jesus is the Prince of Heaven. He's the target of all demonic attacks. Now, we haven't seen this phrase, Prince of Heaven, until this chapter, and so there's a lot of discussion about who this was referring to. But just think about what we saw last chapter. The Ancient of Days, God himself, is enthroned in heaven, so he's, he's reigning there as king of heaven, and before him comes one like the Son of Man, and into this hands the one of the Son of Man is entrusted with a kingdom and dominion. And then the very next chapter, we have someone referred to as the Prince of Heaven. Who's the Prince? The Son of the King of Heaven, who is entrusted with the kingdom. And so we see this, that all of these attacks that come upon the people of God are actually attacks on Jesus And this has happened ever since God told Adam and Eve of his plan that there would one day be a son who would rescue and restore humanity. This is why Pharaoh targeted all of the little babies, the little male babies in, in Israel for destruction. This is why Herod did the same thousands of years later. This is why we keep seeing these attacks. They're attacks on Jesus. Second, the little horns attacks on the sanctuary in verse 11 are really attacks on Jesus. So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the sanctuary was a tent. But it was not just any tent. It was a special tent that was sort of like a traveling temple where Israel would worship God. And this, it was the forerunner of the temple, a permanent structure in Jerusalem where they worshiped him. But the sanctuary was the, the point of contact between deity and humanity. This was where God and man met or came together And in the very middle of the sanctuary was the mercy seat. This is where a a priest brought a sacrifice of blood so that sin could be atoned for. That took place there in the middle of the sanctuary. Now we're told that when Jesus comes, that he is the sanctuary. He is the true temple. He's the place where God and man meet where God and man come together and there in Jesus Christ and through his atoning work and his sacrifice in the place of sinners like us, that this is where forgiveness of sins and cleansing happens. And so this is why Jesus talks about on the day when he hangs upon the cross, he says, he says the temple will be torn down. He's referring to himself, not, not to some physical building. The temple will be torn down, he says, and in three days it will be rebuilt, referring to his resurrection. So this attack on the sanctuary is really an attack on God's promised redemption through Jesus. And third, we see here that God broke Antiochus, verse 25, we're told, without human hands. Now, historically, many people think that refers to the fact that even though he was defeated, his death came through a, a, a sickness. But, but I think it's much more than that. I want you to think back about chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar, he had this vision of kingdoms. They weren't beasts, they were a statue, four parts to the statue, but it really was representative of all human kingdoms in all of their power and their glory and honestly their defiance against God. And it says that this was their fate, that a stone came and the stone smashed into the feet of the statue and the statue trunk 
sort of crumbles down, but it doesn't lay there. It actually it disintegrates into pieces so small. It says that the wind blows them away and there is, there's no pieces remaining, no evidence that they ever existed. But it says that the thing that destroyed all of these earthly kingdoms was a stone. It's described as a, without a hand touching it. Right? And so no human hand creates the stone that it shatters earthly kingdoms and the little horn here is broken without human hands. Now we know from the New Testament the stone is Jesus. And so we understand that the ultimate victory over Antiochus, but ultimately the ultimate victory over anyone who opposes and persecutes God's people does not come through political maneuvering. The victory over evil does not come through armed rebellion. The victory comes through Jesus Christ. That we sing these lyrics and I think they capture the reality of what's happening here. What is our hope in life and death? And we sing it and we answer back, what? Christ alone, Christ alone. In other words, not our effort, not what our hands can do, not what we can manufacture. We don't bring an end to evil. We don't usher in the, the, the final glorious return of Christ. We don't do it. What is our hope when kings rule? What is our hope in times of persecution? What is our hope in difficulty? What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. Jesus Christ, the stone not made with human hands, crushes all evil. This passage, like the Bible as a whole, it's written to help us trust God's salvation, which comes only through Jesus Christ. So the near future for the people of God is suffering, but the ultimate future is the glorious restoration by the Prince of Heaven. After Jesus crushes evil, he turns the whole world into a sanctuary so that his people can enjoy his presence forever. So four realities shape how we view the future. Here's the first one, right? Nations fight each other. Second one, they focus their rage on the people of God. The third one, Jesus guarantees victory. And here's the fourth one, quickly. We'll end with this. Faith empowers perseverance in times of suffering. So how, how, do, we, how do we endure if it really gets harder? Faith empowers endurance. Now this, this chapter ends somewhat abruptly, as, as this sermon's about to do. But I think it provides us a, a beautiful, simple example of what faith looks like during times of pain and persecution. Look at verse 27. Daniel was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. Notice that a well-informed belief in God's sovereignty doesn't make Daniel cynical. Daniel doesn't throw up his hands and say, well, (laughs) that stinks, but God's in control. His heart is moved with such compassion for his people that he can't get out of bed for days. Now we know Daniel is not a weak man. He's just greatly disturbed by what he's heard. This is not a lack of faith on Daniel's part, but a depth of compassion. I, I don't have this type of compassion for others. I wish I did. I long for it. Like Daniel feels this way about generations to come when I struggle feel this way about people around me. 
Like genuine empathy for the suffering of others is not a sign of weakness, but of maturity. Even though he's overwhelmed, but he's seen, Daniel gets up and he goes about the king's business. Hmm. Which king? Which king's business? As you go out, we've read about a lot of kings in Daniel so far, haven't we? So which king's business does he get busy with? You know, the king of kings has placed Daniel in a position to serve the king of Babylon. And by doing one well, he does both. Daniel now understands that Babylon's days are numbered. And he doesn't see that as a reason to quit, but a reason to press in even more to the task that God has given him. Why has God given us these chapters in the book of Daniel? Maybe maybe you asked that question this week as you read them. What difference does it make about a short time of Persia and Greece thousands of years ago and this this sort of no-name, almost forgotten ruler who ruled for such a short time? What difference does it make? And here's here's what I, I think God wants us to see. Knowing God is sovereign in the past... And being convinced that his promises extend in the future. So we know and we see and we recognize that he is in control of the past. And we know and we're convinced and we're confident his promises extend into the future. This helps us find purpose and perspective in the present. Honestly, if you think about the Bible and you think about what we've seen, we are given very few details about the future. Very few details. But we are given certain things that are certain and unmistakable. Here's one of them. Following Jesus will bring suffering and opposition. Following Jesus will bring suffering and opposition, but it won't last forever. God is in control of it all. And he has us where he wants us. And so, therefore, this is what we do. We get up and we get busy about the business he's called us to. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to trust you in the midst of difficulty. Help us to recognize that you have placed us where you want us. Our homes, our jobs, our neighborhoods, our our community, this is where you have us and you, you've given us a charge. You're our king. You've commanded us. You've told us what to do. And you've, you've not told us to get anxious about the future. You've not told us to manipulate uh, some sort of result we want. You've not told us to, to take up our weapons and fight for our vision of something. You've told us to be busy about your business busy doing what you've called us to do, to love you, to love our neighbors, to speak boldly the truth that has been cast down, to shine as lights in the midst of a world of darkness. And so, Father, give us strength to obey. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.